Beaver Nation, it's time to get inside the huddle with the Damn Podcast. The Damn Podcast is your weekly ticket to Oregon State football and recruiting news. Here's your host of the Damn Podcast, BeaverBlitz.com publisher, Angie Machado. Welcome back to another episode of the Damn Podcast. I am your host, Angie Machado. And with me, as always, is BeaverBlitz.com beat writer, Carter Baines. And uh, goodness gracious, we are coming off two wins in a row, Carter. How are you? Was not a late game. You feeling better today? Yeah, I was actually able to get some rest. I didn't get back to the house at 2 a.m. like uh, like after the Hawaii game. So it's nice to be able to come back, eat some dinner and watch those late football games, uh, the, you know, the, the Pac-12 late slate with UCLA Fresno, uh, watch some Boise State, Oklahoma State, uh, took in some of those entertaining games later in the day. You watch some of that Utah, San Diego, San Diego State, like double, triple overtime thing? I didn't catch it. I, I was, I kind of saw some of the updates as I was watching the other games, but uh, that was, that one had to be entertaining. Yeah, I watched the end of that. Anyway, we will get to Pac-12 a little bit later, but let's talk, let's first just jump in and talk about the Beavers game against Idaho. Um, you and I talked last week, I know we, off the record, we were talking all week about this game and, and kind of what we felt like the Beavers needed to do. And I, I think I was more of the pessimist because I've been around this program a long time and seen too many Oregon State teams not do what they're supposed to do against a, a team like Idaho, an FCS team. Um, what went right? Uh, this weekend against Idaho? Well, nearly everything, really. I mean, Oregon State, I thought, did its job on both sides of the ball. Uh, And looking at the scoreboard, I think that's pretty evident. You know, if you put up 42 points, that's going to win you a lot of games. And if you put up zero points on the defensive side, that's going to win you every game. So uh, they, they accomplished what they needed to against an inferior opponent. And uh, I think, there's not a whole lot that we can take away from this game other than uh, this Oregon State team is is performing to expectations at this point, whereas in the past, uh, I think we've seen a bit of a letdown when they take on an FCS opponent. So to go in and, and, and thoroughly manhandle the Vandals was uh, definitely a pleasant sight, I think, for Oregon State fans. And, and we talked about last week, too, how we had hoped to see some of those younger guys, and, and we really did in the fourth quarter. Uh, no score from the offense in the fourth quarter, but um, you know, were you happy to see a lot of those younger guys getting in the in the in the game? Well, not only getting in, but performing too. You know, I mean, l- looking at the the stat sheet, uh, Kyrie Fisher led the team in tackles, and that's a guy who you know has gotten some playing time, but the ability to put him in there for extended minutes—that's uh, actually the first time. This, this stat is incredible to me. It's the first time in the last 15 games that Omar Spates or Avery Roberts did not lead the team in tackles. Wow. Uh, Jalen Moore Jalen Moore in 2019 uh, was the leading tackler against Utah in that, that blowout. Um, but, I mean, you just you go up and down the roster, and Easton Mascarenas, true freshman, comes in and has a big game. Five tackles filled up a bunch of different categories. Uh, the receivers, Oregon State had 11 different guys catch a pass, and that includes Tommy Spencer, John Dunmore, Silas Bolden, Nakia Tung. Um, and, and in the running game, we saw, I think, every running back except Amir Collins, and he might have come in uh, after I left the press box to go down to the media room. But how about Isaiah Newell taking three carries? Mikey Alfieri has a, a 12-yard carry. Kanoa Shannon, two carries. Um I, I, I even saw Gavin Haynes, the true freshman, I believe, walk on, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, come in and, and he didn't get a carry, but he was in for one play. And just it, it's always cool to see some of those guys who wouldn't otherwise get in the game, get a little bit of run. Um, and, and to see a lot of them play very well in their limited opportunities was pretty cool, too. Yeah, I, I think you brought up my key, actually, for the offense. Um, and I, I addressed this a little bit. And he said, she said this week. But. What I love to see, and I think for too long we've seen Oregon State quarterbacks that kind of lock on to their primary target, and it becomes very evident who their their top target is. And to watch um, to watch Chance Nolan 
pass that ball around. I mean, it shows to me a, a lot of confidence in his receivers, a lot of talent in that room, but also I, I think a real knowledge of the offense for him to be able to see the field and then distribute that ball as much as he's done um, the past two weeks. And, and Jonathan Smith actually mentioned that after the game, you know, he said, I, I asked him about the fact that 11 receivers caught passes and what that says about the depth of the receiving core. But he also wanted to mention it. And I think he's totally right. Just Nolan's ability to get through his progression now, uh, as opposed to last year where he would lock onto that first or second read. Now he's getting through the one, two, three, even four in his progression. And you're seeing that show up uh, with Oregon state's leading receivers were the tight ends, Musgrave and Quatoriano, and they both had three catches. So if your leading receiver has three catches, that's either a really good sign or a really bad sign. And of course, in this case, it was a, a very good sign, but I'll just go down the list here and, and tell you how many targets each of these guys got, because I think that uh, really exemplifies how well Nolan and Neuer and then Bidlack were able to move the ball around. So Musgrave has three targets, Quatoriano three targets, Zariah Beeson three targets, Treshawn Harrison actually led the team with four. Champ Fleming's had a target, Makaya Tung, one, Tajon Lindsay, two, Trevon Bradford, two, Silas Bolden, one, John Dunmore, one, Tommy Spencer, one. So nobody has more than four, and nobody has more than three catches, uh, but 11 guys touch the ball in, in the passing game. That's Those are incredible numbers. And that that keeps your wide receiver room happy, too, when when everybody's able to, to make a contribution and uh, not feel like they're just out there being blocking blockers. And that's important too now with you know the transfer portal and everything and with the depth Oregon State does have in that room, keeping guys happy and, and making sure they stay on campus, that's going to be big. And uh, a game like this certainly goes a long way in doing that. And, and seeing the team on the, on the sideline was fun to see. I mean, they, they were all having fun. I mean, when, when Sam Bidlack went in, you know, you saw guys cheering or, or was it Skylar Thomas had the interception, the entire sideline erupted and, um, it, it's funny what winning can do, you know, for, for the whole mentality of a team. Avery Roberts mentioned after the game too, just how cool it was to see uh, the guys that you see in practice making plays, whether that's uh, further on the depth chart or even some of the scout team guys that make plays, uh, just how fun it was to watch them actually do that in a game setting against an opponent uh, and, and not that starting group that they face in practice five days a week. Uh, and I, I think he's exactly right. You know, it's, it is cool to see those guys get an opportunity. And you mentioned Skylar Thomas. I think one of my one of my favorite pictures from this game uh, that Oregon State published was Skylar Thomas jumping in the air and giving a hug to Rajon Wright after that interception. And I said, you know, that's Oregon State's best corner celebrating a true freshman getting his first career pick. That's that's a pretty special moment. Yeah, yeah. It, it was fun just to see the sidelines and to see the pure joy, you know, when they're grabbing the turnover chainsaw and of the, of the veterans, of the young guys, everybody. And like you said, I mean, you know, football can be a drag, especially if you're on the scout team and you're working your butt off day in and day out and not getting that, maybe that joy of playing in front of your friends and family. So to get that um, and a big win, like I said, two wins. Um, and we, we're going to go back and talk a little bit about the first game too, a little, just to see the woulda, coulda, shoulda there with Purdue. Um, but that'll be a little bit later. I know it's hard to say, but did we learn anything about this team against Idaho? Not really. I, I don't think. And going into the game, I said, we really shouldn't learn much from this team in this game. You know, if, if we learn anything, uh, it's, it's probably not going to be in the positive category, you know, because the expectation is that you go out and you beat Idaho by five or more touchdowns and um, obviously you don't expect to to pitch a shutout you, you can't expect expect that against anybody uh, so maybe maybe we learn that the defense um, is, is performing at a higher level than maybe we even expected uh, but outside of that I mean really no huge takeaways uh, the only other thing that I could think of would be just the fact that Idaho I think moved the ball a little bit too easily in the first half uh, but even then, you know, the Oregon State defense, even though it got lucky, I think, on a few third downs, it held Idaho to four of 13 on third down, which is an area that we obviously wanted to see a lot of improvement in. And holding an opponent to 30% certainly gets the job done. And 
uh, four turnovers on downs is is pretty good too. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I agree. I the game started and it Idaho seemed to be moving the ball pretty pretty easily. And I mean Oregon State obviously kept them out um and kept them from scoring, but it was I guess like I said, the the old timer in me was just not, you know, breathing super easy there at the beginning, but um they did it and it's been a long time since we've seen them uh pitch a shutout at Reeser Stadium. 2006, I believe, right? Was the 2006. last shutout at Reeser. Yep, they beat Idaho that year. Uh, 2008 was the last one overall. That three nothing win in the in the Sun Bowl against Pitt. That blustery day wasn't that. I believe that was Justin Kahoot, right? Who had the. I the believe only you're right. Wow, game. that is a name. That is a blast from the past. <laughs> so I, I actually have to. I won't name a name, but I a, a friend of mine, um, a, a listener of the podcast, member at Beaver Blitz, had sent me a picture. And it was the cutest picture of his sons who were both in their beaver jerseys and were honorary ball boys the last time that uh, Oregon State beat Idaho 15 years ago. It was super, super cute. Um, I, I can show Carter real quick, but he can't really see it. And he has now taken both of his boys down to Oregon State. They are both students at Oregon State. But um, it was 15 years. I mean, here are these little guys with Ken Simonton, and uh, now they're students at Oregon State. So. Um, Kudos to Oregon State for that because that um, is not something we see often at uh, in Corvallis. So, any who are your standout players? I know we've mentioned a bunch of players, but I always like to kind of have the game ball. Um, I like Carter's game ball or game balls um, for the for each game. So, um, if you had to pick a couple on offense, a couple on defense, Carter, who do, who are you going with? All right, I'll do two on both sides of the ball because I, I think there are a lot of very comparable performances uh, just with the fact that, you know, so many of the plays were spread out among so many guys. Uh, when I went back and I looked at the stat sheet, I said, wow, like everybody has the exact same stat line. Even the uh, running backs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, there were like, well, the, the, the three in the committee were almost identical, but the, the first game ball I'll give is to Chance Nolan. Goes 14 of 19 in the passing game. That's a 73.7 completion percentage. And this is, you know, three weeks in a row now that we've gone back to that stat. I mean, he's just completing passes at an absurd rate compared to what he was doing last year. So oh, uh, to see way, that. You're, you're the stat guy. He has to be at, at least at QB rating toward the top of the Pac 12. Second. He's second, second okay. right now. Okay. Yep. And that is behind. I believe Dorian Thompson Robinson at UCLA. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So Chance um, Nolan gets your first offensive game ball. Who gets your next? Yeah. So Nolan had those three touchdowns and he was also uh, carrying the ball pretty well, save for that one 13 yard sack. But second game ball goes to BJ Baylor, who solidified his lead in the, the touchdown category at Oregon State. He's now, I believe, second in the country. He was second entering the game with five touchdowns. He added two more against Idaho. So seven through three games uh, puts him firmly at the top of Oregon State's leaderboard and puts him right near the top nationally. And he's actually on pace to set the, the single season school record for touchdowns, which I'll put you on the spot. Do you know who holds that record? For rushing touchdowns? Single season rushing touchdowns. I, I've got to go with Ken Simonson. Close. He's second. Jaquiz Rogers had 21 okay. in, I believe, 2009. So, to so be fair, I mean, there's there was a whole string there of amazing rushers. Yeah, I mean, you could pick one of probably 10 guys and have a pretty good shot at, at guessing yeah. that one. But so quiz, Baylor okay. through three games, Baylor through three games is on pace, uh, and obviously the competition will get tougher as the year goes on. But kind of a cool stat. That is okay. How about defense? As we move to the defensive side, Kyrie Fisher, yeah. uh, as I mentioned earlier, led the team in tackles. Uh, he had that huge hit on CJ Jordan uh, to record his, I believe, first career sack. He had an, addi an additional tackle for loss and also recorded a quarterback hurry in what was by far the best game of his career. And was he was one of the very, very many breakout performers on the Oregon State roster. And then the other game ball on the defensive side goes to Omar Spates, who recorded his second career interception. Uh, he had that one, I believe, against Washington State, his true freshman season. 
to put Oregon State in a position to potentially win that game. Of course, they came up just short. Uh, but Spates finished second on the team in tackles with six. He also had half a tackle for loss uh, in addition to that pick. So those are the four game balls from the game against Idaho. And I'll mention, I believe the, the, uh, the real game ball, if you will, um, that the team handed out went to Deshaun Fenwick. I saw him leaving the locker room with a football in his hands. I think that was, I think that was from his first touchdown. That was his first touchdown. And I saw him carrying it on the sideline afterwards. So I'm mm-hmm. sure he kind of tucked that away somewhere and, and took mm-hmm. that with him. Um, I just want to throw out, I mean, I think those are good choices. I want to just give an honorable mention to Easton Mascarenas. I know you mentioned him earlier, but um, true freshman. And, you know, I, I think Oregon State has been in such good, solid hands when you look at Avery Roberts and Omar Spates that you kind of forget that those guys aren't going to be here forever. So um, to see Kyrie and uh, like I said, Easton, true freshman, big hits, Tackles for loss. I mean, he was in a lot of spot in a lot of places the second half and excited for what he will bring in his career. Switching gears a little bit. You said you meant you watched some Pac-12. How disappointed are you with the Pac-12 overall? I don't know what you watched, but I'll just give you a quick rundown. Of, we're going to start with Pac-12 North. Okay. So Oregon beat Stony Brook, but they did not look super amazing in that first half. Um, and then just switching gears, I know they had the big win against Ohio State, but I don't know if you watched much Ohio State, but I am not super impressed with them right now. Um, okay, Washington beat Arkansas State. Cal beat Sac State, but gave up 30 points doing it. And then Stanford beat Bandy. Takeaways, hot takes from Carter on the Pac-12 North. Well, it was a bit of a rebound week for the North, I think. Just, it, I mean, that's not really saying much. Um, And it certainly wasn't a great week, but Washington's the one that stands out to me, a 52 to three win over Arkansas state, you know, Arkansas state's not a good team, but this is the same Husky squad that lost to Montana two weeks ago. So we have to, we have to put everything in perspective here. Uh, They would have lost to Arkansas state and Montana in the same. Do you think Jimmy Lake would have been coaching by the time they come here in a couple of weeks? Yeah, but his his seat would be flaming hot at that point, I think. <laughs> um, but the offense, you know, I think I think they were a little mad at their performance the first two weeks, and they come out and and put a fifty burger on Arkansas State. That's uh, that's how you bounce back. And I, I saw Dylan Morris had you know a bunch of yards, a few a few touchdowns, uh, and that's exactly the kind of performance he needed to get back on track. And uh, my, I, I think the stock on Washington might be rising a little bit. I know it's just one game, but, uh, you know, we, we were saying after one game to open the year that they were going to be bad. So we can't overreact week by week, but I think this is maybe one of those get right games for them. Uh, Cal giving up three or uh, 30 points to Sac State not a great look for the golden bears. And I, I think they have just underperformed to this point in the season. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little down on them now, as opposed to where I was entering the year. Uh, and then Oregon, you mentioned, you know, that first half, I was like, wow, this is not the same Oregon team that went into the horseshoe a week ago and, and came up with that big win, but um, they make the move to Ty Thompson in the second half. And he led that offense to 48 points in total in a, in a blowout win over Stony Brook. So uh, the Ducks did exactly what we thought they would. It just took a little while for him to, to do it. How about the Pac-12 South? So USC goes up and beats Washington State, albeit with a new quarterback. Um, Arizona, this, this, well, there's a couple stunners here. Arizona lost to Northern Arizona. Arizona may be the worst team in the Pac-12. Colorado lost to Minnesota. And at one point, I don't know, I don't think they put up more than 50 yards of total offense in that game. Uh, Utah lost in triple overtime to San Diego State. ASU lost to BYU, and Fresno State came back to beat UCLA. What are your your takeaways from Pac-12 South? So I, I'm checking on that to see how many yards Colorado put up, and I'm I'm struggling to find the stats for that. Um, but that's, I mean, that's an abysmal offensive performance. Yeah, it getting was, shut it was out bad. by getting shut out by Minnesota and having, uh, as you said maybe 50 yards in the fourth quarter uh, that is that's almost on par with what Washington did in week one 
the, the one game that stands out, of course, in the South is Arizona falling to Northern Arizona. Uh, just another another installment in this year's FCS dominance over the FBS. <laughs> I mean, it's it really is interesting just how many teams have gone into FBS stadiums and, and come away with wins. And this is now the second the second Pac-12 team of the year to fall to an FCS opponent. And, and I, I, I didn't have big expectations for Arizona entering the year, but they are, I mean, they're bad. They're just, they're bad. They're, just bad. they're like 1990s Oregon state bad. Yeah. This, it's, this is, it's going to be a Arizona, rough year for Jed Fish. Arizona is the homecoming team that you schedule for homecoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's how bad. About, uh, how about Jake Hayner at Fresno state though, leading yeah. the Bulldogs over UCLA. Yeah, man, I, I think there were a, a couple of people entering the week that said UCLA might be the most overrated team in the Pac-12 right now, uh, just by nature of the wins they had gotten and the fact that you know they hadn't really proven it yet. Uh, that that Fresno State team is very good, but uh, UCLA might have proved that they weren't quite a top fifteen team. Yeah, yeah, the, the rankings this year have been a little little screwy. Fresno, I agree. I you know, watching what Fresno, how tough they played Oregon, and then to watch them against UCLA, they're, they're going to, um, you know, surprise, maybe not surprise people, but they're a lot better than I think people were, were giving them credit. So Oregon State's finishes at a conference. You've seen three weeks now of Pac-12. Does your thinking change on, like, it, well, a couple things. Does your thinking change on how well Oregon State can do against the Pac-12? And has your thinking changed about maybe who the top teams in the Pac-12 are. I think so, yeah. Just the fact that the North has struggled to the extent it has at this point, um, and then the South just kind of flipping the script and, and taking over as the, the better half of the conference, I think that bodes very well for Oregon State because obviously they're going to play every team in the North. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate that they miss Arizona in the South, but... Uh, Colorado underperforming lines up very well for them. Utah struggling to open the year at, at one and two, that bodes well for them. Uh, and so I think there is a potential for Oregon state to kind of go in and maybe exceed expectations in, in conference. And, you know, the interesting thing is now going two and one in non-conference for the first time in it's six years, Oregon state doesn't even have to go 500 in conference to make a bowl game. That's, I mean, that's huge. They only have to win four of their next nine games. And so if you can go four and five in conference, you're going bowling. And I think seeing the way that the North in particular has played this year, four wins is, is easily doable. Uh, yeah, and I, mean, I think four, Oregon State has four home games. So you win your home games and, you know, you're there yeah. or, you know, it, yeah. it makes it a lot more doable to win those, those early games. And going into the year, I, I had them picked to win six games. I said seven, maybe. Um, a lot of that kind of hinged on the Purdue game. I said winning at Purdue is the key to getting bowl eligible. Uh, and now, obviously, you know, seeing that they lost to the Boilermakers, you might think, well, there goes their bowl chances. Well, I, I think they might have a better chance now than they did entering the year, seeing the way the Pac-12 is played. So it's, yeah. it's going to be an interesting final nine games of the year. And uh, I, I think Oregon state fans have reason to be optimistic. Yeah. So that just made me think of something. So watching Purdue, Notre Dame, I mean, Purdue, I mean, if it wasn't for a couple bad turnovers, you know, they actually, they out, out, uh, had more yards than they, than Notre Dame did, um, played a pretty solid game. Is this Purdue team better than maybe we thought they were going into the season? And if so, do you think leading with them in week one, maybe helps prepare Oregon State for some of the better teams? They're probably better than we expected, yeah. And I think, you know, what's interesting is if Oregon State had opened the year against Idaho, maybe that's an opportunity for Sam Neuer to play a little bit better in his first game. And who knows, we could still be talking about Neuer leading this offense. Uh, But the fact that Purdue's defense was able to expose some weaknesses in his game and and Nolan was able to capitalize on his opportunity there. uh, Now, obviously, Oregon State's offense is off to the races with Nolan under center. And uh, it's, you know, the the butterfly effect is is certainly at play here when when you go with the hindsight game. Uh, But I think playing the Boilermakers when they did uh, really, really gave Oregon State a chance to 
to kind of re regroup a little bit entering the rest of non-conference. And I think they're going to be better for it as this season progresses. Okay. The woulda, coulda, shoulda game. If Oregon State had started uh, Chance Nolan at Purdue, do you think we're 3-0 and right now? I do. Yeah, I posed that question in the lodge at Beaver Blitz last weekend after uh, after the performance against Hawaii, and most people were on board with that idea. You know, I think Nolan, uh, what we've seen from him is a touchdown drive pretty much every time he's touched the ball. Uh, and I get that Hawaii and Idaho don't have overpowering defenses, but uh, to be able to lead your team to scores on almost every possession uh, that you have the ball in your hands, that's pretty impressive. And he actually showed that against Purdue as well. So if he had started the game, I think Oregon State would have had more than the one touchdown or whatever it was they had in the first half. So let's, I, I promise we'd kind of do an out of conference rewind. So I, I kind of look at it. We are what a quarter of the way through the year now, which is crazy to me. I think that, but um, did you see what you expected from the Beaver offense during these first three games? Outside of the first half at Purdue, yes. Uh, I, I don't think it was a surprise to see them dominate Hawaii and Idaho to the extent they did on that side of the ball. Uh, this this offense we know has a ton of weapons. It's got depth, has high level talent and has a lot of experience as well at key positions. And when we looked at all of that entering the year, we said, man, they have a chance to score a ton of points this year. And outside of the first half hour of the season, they've done just that. And so one thing that I didn't expect is to see Chance Nolan leading the offense to that success. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see what he can bring the rest of the year because you know, his, his skill set lends itself to, uh, to a very explosive offense. How about the defense? Have you seen what you expected to see? Have they lived up to expectations? Have they fallen short? You know, where are you at with the, with the defense? The defensive line in particular has definitely exceeded expectations, especially with Isaac Hodgins out. You know, I think we all expected this to be the weakest group on the defense. And while it might still be, the weakest group uh, it's it's not weak by any by any stretch of the word you know they're they're getting a lot more pressure than they have in the past um, the depth is showing because when the second group of guys comes in you don't really see a whole will drop off in, in production uh, those backup guys are getting into the backfield as well and making plays and that's really exciting because as we said going into the year Oregon State success really uh, depends on if the D line can take a step forward. And I think, you know, without question, that group has, has, has shown a ton of improvement to this point. Uh, but outside of that, the defense looks about like what I expected it to, you know, there it's a bend, but don't break type of scheme. And uh, we can get into that uh, if you want talking about the scheme, because that's where I think the, the, the real weaknesses lie on that side of the ball, but outside well, of. Oh yeah. Go I was going, that was the next question was just coaching. So. I think offensively, I think we're, we're fine. We can kind of glaze over that, but defensive coaching, do you, the scheme, I think that's where we've seen some glaring weaknesses. I think that's where we've been exposed. And I don't, I, I don't think we can tell a ton from Hawaii or Idaho. So I think it starts this week at USC. What do you want to see um, coaching wise on defense and scheme? I don't know enough about the X's and O's to, to draw up a defensive game plan, but I know what the result is that we want to see. And that's just better third down play. If, if we're being honest, that's really what it comes down to at this point, because we, we have seen uh, an uptick in production at each position group. We've seen that they have talent on every group. It's just a matter of putting those guys in the right position to make plays. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this last week with, the linebackers and coverage uh, and, you know, the secondary playing off their man on the line of scrimmage. And, and that's where I think some of those schematic uh, tweaks need to be made, but I don't know exactly what needs to be changed, but uh, just to see more success on third down, uh, I think that does lie on the coaches rather than the talent of the defense. Agree. Agree. Um, start of the PAC 12 play. Have you learned anything with a couple of the Pac-12 teams that have played each other? 
trying to think which Pac-12 teams have squared off. Obviously, we saw Washington State and USC this week. And then I think, I guess just Stanford and USC. So USC's played That's two right. Pac-12 games already, which is okay, a good, well, it's a good segue because we're moving right into talking USC next. So um, let's just move right into that. Um, offensively, what do you want to see the Beavs do? You're heading down to uh, LA, the Coliseum. What do you want to see from this Beaver offense against the Trojans? It's going to need to score early in the game uh, as it has in the last two weeks, because I think USC will be able to score the ball. Uh, that's, that's not really much of a question, even with their, well, it looks like they're going to be starting a backup quarterback. Um, if Oregon state wants to hang in this thing, they're going to need to have uh, continued success on the offensive side of the ball. And actually, you know, the Beavers have done an incredible job to open the game. Uh, you know, to come to come out of the gates, just firing on all cylinders on offense. They scored on their first four drives against Idaho, their first three, I believe, against Hawaii. Um, and that's a, a testament to the offensive game planning. It's also a testament to, as we mentioned, just the talent and, and leadership on that side of the ball. That's going to need to continue in L.A. if they want to have a chance. Uh, and I mean, everything we've seen from them indicates that they're certainly capable of it uh, against a USC defense that is OK, but you know, very talented. Uh, so you're going to need to execute at a high level to move the ball against the caliber of athletes that USC has. And I think uh, you know, Oregon State is, is certainly capable of it if they, keep, if they keep playing and executing to the extent that they have over the last two and a half weeks. How, you know, I, Oregon State has not won at the, in the Coliseum since 1960, well before you and I were even born. Uh, what is that, 61 years do you think, I mean, so many Oregon State players are from that Southern California area. Their, their, player, or their, their families are down there. Their friends are down there. Do you think that some of the struggles at USC can be attributed to maybe distractions, you know, night before distractions, day of distractions, or is it just simply a talent differential? Because, I mean, let's just be honest, USC is a team that recruits at a way higher level than Oregon State. It could be a combination of both, but I think it's mostly talent because you mentioned being from the area, having family and friends at the game and, and knowing some of the, the guys on the other side of the ball that you're squaring off against. Uh, if I remember back to the, the game against UCLA two years ago when they went down to the Rose Bowl, um, they used or Oregon State used that as motivation. You know, they wanted to prove to the guys on the UCLA roster that they're better than them. Uh, they wanted to. To, to kind of show out for their family and friends that were in attendance. And so I think uh, that's not necessarily a distraction at all. Maybe it's more of a, a motivational piece, uh, but there is, there is certainly a talent gap between USC and Oregon State. There always has been, and quite frankly, there probably always will be, uh, just with, with USC being located in such a hotbed of, of young talent. Uh, and the, so and I, history, I think, you know, the, the history. yeah, and the tradition and, yeah. you know, it's, it's a huge stadium. They're always going to draw a big crowd and um, that makes it a very difficult atmosphere to win in. And I think now with Clay Helton being fired, this being their first home game uh, under their interim head coach, then having a new quarterback, potentially if Slovis is unable to go, I think the fan base is really going to show up for this game. I, I think there's some energy in that fan base that they haven't had in quite a while. Uh, they've been waiting for a reason to be excited and a 45 to 14 win over Washington state uh, with an interim head coach and a backup quarterback is, is probably going to get them pretty fired up to go watch their Trojans in person for the first time since Helton was fired. Defensively, what do you want to see from the Beavs? I mean, what do they need to do to, uh, to slow the Trojans? Well, somebody in the lodge at, at Beaver Blitz mentioned uh, Oregon State's going to be facing kind of the holy trinity of quarterbacks that, uh, that they struggle with. That's a backup freshman who can run the ball. And I mean, that, that's exactly right. Like, I mean, you look at some of the true freshmen Oregon State has played and oh, I mean, Jaden Delora backup. last year comes to mind, yeah. but I mean, you can go Willie down the Tama, years. like totally lit Oregon State up back in the day. I mean, there's a history. Yeah, of there's it. a history. And, this this guy had success against Washington State. I need to pull up his name. I believe it's Jackson Dart. It's Dart. Yep, Jack. Jack. Which Dart. is which is a great name for a quarterback, by the way, especially a dual threat quarterback. Um, but yeah, they're gonna they're gonna have to be able to contain him. And going up against a mobile quarterback uh, two weeks in a row now against Hawaii and Idaho, both both teams have kind of dual threat guys. 
uh, that's going to prepare them. And they're going to need to execute more like they did on Saturday than they did against the Rainbow Warriors because, you know, Hawaii's points were almost completely attributable to uh, Cordero being able to, to move around the pocket and escape pressure. That's well, the key to, to stopping the Trojans, in my yeah, opinion, is, is I, containing Dart. But I think, I mean, you look at USC's receivers too. It's not like they have slouches at wide receiver. It, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, areas that Oregon State's going to going to need to uh, be ready to play and you can't you can't be giving up those little slant routes either but I think one thing that actually does kind of give Oregon State an opportunity is if there's one position group on USC's roster that's been uh, maybe a point of concern entering the year and even to this point in, in the regular season is the offensive line uh, I, I can't remember if it was an experience issue or if it was a talent problem um, but I know that, that was a point of concern among uh, people who are covering the team fans uh, it's it's a group that I think Oregon State could um, could have some success against and we've seen the front seven take a big step forward in creating pocket pressure I believe they still lead the conference in tackles for loss they had 11 against Idaho um, if, if they can get a bunch of pressure on dart they're going to have some opportunities to get to him and really the key is just putting them on the ground yeah, yeah. Get to him early and uh, make him so he's hearing some footsteps. Make him second guess himself. Carter, we'll have tons of coverage at Beaver Blitz all week um, leading up to this USC game. I'm excited because we're back. We're back in Pac-12 play now. 24-7 uh, has a great network of Pac-12 program schools um, on the network. So I'm excited for us to partner up with USC's site, Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com and his great staff. Um, you'll be heading down to LA. So uh, we'll be having live updates from the Coliseum. So I'm excited for you. Um, but how about, I posed damn questions in the lodge this morning and we have a lot of them. Are you, are you up for some damn questions? Yeah. Did we skip them last week or is it two weeks ago we missed it? I think we skipped it last week because I didn't okay. pose them. So we've got a lot. And, and all over the board, I opened it up. I said, anything football about the team? anything is good. So, uh, black is back. 10 says, which side of the fence do you land on with playing for and against a midseason interim coach, some potential turmoil advantage OSU or new gain swagger and confidence advantage USC. I think early on under an interim coach, you tend to see teams play with, um, a lot more fire. And that was evident, you know, when Corey Hall took over at Oregon State, they came out first game under him. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his first game was that Stanford game uh, when yeah. Oregon State lost by a point or two. Yeah, I, I might be remembering that incorrectly, but um, regardless, you know, Oregon State did play substantially better in those first couple of games under Corey Hall than they did when Anderson was still there. And quite frankly, uh, than they did at the end of the season when they were losing big to Oregon and and some of those other late season opponents. So with USC's interim taking over prior to the Washington State game, this is week two for him. I think you're still in that window where this team could be really fired up to play for a guy that they love. You know, he has great connections with the players. Uh, he's one of the best recruiters in the country. That that goes a long way uh, if, if you're an interim guy. And I think these guys are going to be fired up to go out and perform really well for him. Uh, so I'd say advantage USC in, in that category at this point, but later in the year, it'll be interesting to see if some of that wears off a little bit. Reeser Beeb 23 says, after three games, how do you feel about the chances of a bowl game? And you've kind of answered that about you feel better. Um, and then what will it take for the heat to be off coach Tibisar? What's it going to take? Well, a shutout certainly helps um, playing against Idaho. You know, I don't think there was much room for tip, for Tibisar to to gain a whole lot of ground uh, in in the eyes of the fans. But his seat's probably a little cooler now. But I think it will take um, just a, a consistent, let's just say, consistent performances throughout conference play. Um, you know, you, you can't see them give up forty points to to USC and then go and hold Washington to to two touchdowns. You know, you want to see a I think more just consistency. If they give up three touchdowns to USC and then three touchdowns to Washington, that's better than USC scoring a ton and then Washington scoring none. 
um, because that consistency does come back to the scheme, I, I think. And improvement on third down conversions. That'll, that that'll go a long way. That'll go a long way in, in improving the overall product because what we've seen is just an ability to make a bunch of plays early in, early in the drive, but then on third down, it all blows up. And so if they can, if they can get off the field just a couple more times per game, they're going to win quite a few games this year. Okay, here's, here's one that makes you think. I know what my answer is, by the way. Mr. G. Gray, who is a Trojan, played for the Trojans, but has some connections to uh, the Beavs. I think he'll be rooting for the Beavs this week. Would you root for the Beavers to go undefeated the rest of the season for a magical 2001-esque run with a victory in the Rose Bowl if it meant losing Coach Smith and his staff to the open USC job next season? I saw this question earlier today when I was, <laughs> when I was browsing through the lodge and uh, it made me think for a second, but only for a second because I was say, the, only words, a second. the words Rose Bowl, uh, those really stood out to me. And I was like, you know, I, I'm not old enough to have very much of a memory, if, if any memory at all of the 2001 team. Uh, I, I need to see something like that from Oregon State in my lifetime. And so if if it takes giving up Jonathan Smith to USC, uh, so be it. Give me a Rose Bowl. See, I'm right there with you. Because I think if Oregon State has a magical run like that, it, they're in a better position to go out and get a, a good coach. Plus, I, yeah, I don't I think know. You're right. I, I don't know. And this is not a knock on, on Coach Smith or his staff. But I just don't know if they're, they're all a little quiet. Um, I, I don't know how well they would like that being under the microscope in LA. I mean, coach Smith doesn't like being asked weekly about an injury from four media members. He is definitely not going to like, um, the 10 to 20 that are down at USC every single day, asking daily updates, definitely a different world down there. And with all due respect to Jonathan Smith and, and this Oregon state staff, which is doing an incredible job up here in Corvallis. Uh, I don't know if, if a big season would be enough for USC to bring them on. I think USC is looking for a, a huge name or, or somebody with a, a more proven track record. So it'll be but interesting. It's a great to see question. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. It, it's a, uh, yeah, I think they're, they're, you know, urban Meyer or Chris Peterson or Mario Cristobal. They're, they're mm -hmm. all in on, on these big names. Um, okay. M Chiafoni, which Matt, you're not asking about Ju Juco D, D lineman right now. I'm, I'm kind of I'm shocked. Um, let's say it's 2031. Does the Pac-12, as we know it, still exist? I've gone back and forth on this over the last couple of months with all of the chaos that has, you know, ensued in, in college football. And I think the conference as a whole will still exist in the same capacity, but I think the landscape of college football will be so much different that maybe conferences don't mean as much as they do now. Um, maybe there's a, a wider gap between the Oregons and the USC's and the rest of the conference. I think there's just, you know, the, the Pac-12 was, was so hesitant to even think about, ex, to even think about expanding this year that I don't see there being a whole lot of major changes within the next decade at the conference level. Uh, but who knows? I, I would, I would wager that the NCAA might not exist in 2031, but the Pac-12 might have a better chance. Good, good call. Um, Connor King, he has a couple of good ones here. First one is the attendance has been super low for the last two games. Do you attribute that to COVID or just fans losing interest in a team that hasn't had a winning record for years? Both. I, I think, you know, just the amount of protocols, uh, the level of caution that a lot of people take, uh, that certainly plays a, a big role. And as it should, you know, people need to be able to make decisions for themselves. And I, I think across the country, you'll see a, a decrease in attendance uh, just because of the fact that we are still at the end of the day in a pandemic, uh, but also Oregon state needs to win some games if they want fans and stands. And uh, that's obviously been something that they haven't done in, in quite some time. And uh, you're not going to see a huge uptick in, in attendance until they start stringing together some wins against actual opponents. Uh, you know, yeah, if I they mean, go down, if they go down to USC and come away with a win, I think you see a ton of people in the stands for, for Washington, but, um, it would take a couple of wins in a row uh, to bring that attendance number back up to something sustained, maybe above the 35,000 mark. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think if, if, if Oregon State can go down and win um, 
at USC. I think Washington will be, um, you know, a better attended. I, I also think you've got to look at not only has the team not won in years, they're in, we're in a pandemic. You also have to look that it was an 8 p.m. kick against Hawaii. So that's never good. Um, and then Saturday was a 1230 kick against Idaho in like the first rain that we've seen in the Valley. And it just wasn't like a super like, yeah, let's go hang out and get drenched at a football game. One thing I will say though is I have been just incredibly impressed with the student turnout. Yeah. Um, we're, we're recording this on Sunday, the 19th, which is move-in day uh, for, for new students at Oregon State. But both, both home non-conference games came before move-in day. And the student section both times was almost completely full. I mean, there was one, you know how the, the student section at Reeser extends across the entire field and it's broken up into multiple smaller sections. Only one of those smaller little blocks was empty yesterday. Uh, and that's before all of the freshmen made it to campus. So I, I got to give the students a ton of credit for showing out in full force like that, especially for a 1230 kickoff in the rain. Uh, that's that says a lot, I think, about the the student fan base right now, and I think they're excited to to watch Oregon State win some more games this year. Yeah, it was fun too to see them into it, um, and like you, like we talked about earlier, just the excitement with the players and the and the students. Um, Druzy ten would like to know what tune-ups were you hoping to see against Idaho going into Pac-12 play um, to make you confident that this group will go bowling. Well, I know we, we keep going back to the third down defense, but that was the thing, really. Um, you know, I said, if you can't get off the field on third down against Idaho, you're going to be in trouble when you face uh, some of the high-powered offenses of like an, an Oregon or a USC in this conference. Uh, but the fact that they did improve in that category, again, going four of 13 for 30%, uh, despite a couple of, of dropped passes and questionable play calling, from the Vandals. Uh, it was improvement nonetheless, and that's exactly what we needed to see. And I will go the other side of the ball, and we saw an offense that didn't really take its its foot off the gas. And uh, they were basically, I mean, they were able to score at will, so um, they didn't run it up. Although I know it would have been bad sportsmanship, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a proponent for this, but it would have been fun to see Vidlack and those freshmen, you know, punch it in just because. But again, that wouldn't have been very nice to, to Idaho. Big Z132 asks, why is our defense unable to stop mobile quarterbacks consistently? Is this a lack of defensive talent, poor scheme, or bad tackling? Some combination of those three factors, I think. Although the talent piece is getting better, as, as we've said, uh, the tackling piece is also getting better. That's been a point of emphasis over the last really three years in practice. And uh, I think you're seeing that uh, show up this year with better open field tackling and an ability to to make more plays behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, so it does, again, just go back to the scheme. Uh, but there is an element still of a talent gap between Oregon State and the rest of the Pac-12. Uh, tackling is going to be a product of that. Uh, but then at the end of the day, you have to be able to overcome that with schematics. And that's not something that the coaching staff has done to this point. Yeah. And, and putting those players in the best position for what you have. Now, I will be excited when we see John McCartan back on the field because I think he adds a different element um, to the Beaver defense. Um, Rio Alsi asks if Smith is going to take the team to in and out if they can win down in LA. I think that was a Coach Riley thing, but might be worth watching. He may. That was, a, uh, that was a really fun element of that awesome 2012 season. Uh, going to in and out after every win and they won a lot of games that year they so did. They there did. were a lot of double doubles being consumed but does in and out does it have the same meaning now that those kids could just drive to uh kaiser and get one probably not no uh, it's, it's Although, not like i mean it's a 45 minute drive from campus and then you're waiting in line for probably another hour so True. i don't know True. i don't know how many of them do it i i don't know but can you imagine getting that order when when dvd calls in and says any double doubles for the travel squad i would not want to be working that fry grill right then um how about jru this is the last one and i i will go back to the question about winning a rose bowl and john there are some funny comments and pretty much unanimously everyone is saying heck yeah they would take that rose bowl in a magical season if it meant losing coach smith 
So there you have it. Um, JRU has one. I think the Skylar Thomas signing is going to be huge. So what did you see that you liked about the younger players that played on Saturday? So we actually, uh, Jonathan Smith was asked on Thursday before the game uh, if, you know, who, who some of the, the true freshmen are that might not use a redshirt year. And Skylar Thomas is one guy in particular. He said, uh, this guy's not using a redshirt year. You know, he's already played a bunch on special teams and, and made a handful of plays. And when he finally got a chance uh, to get a little more extended run at corner this week against Idaho, he cashed in with an interception. And that's a true freshman at a position of need. Uh, going in and, and stepping up and making a big play. And uh, Elijah Jones did return to the field this week, but I think maybe you might see some Skylar Thomas uh, cracking the two deep a little bit more. I know he is listed on the two deep, but with Jones coming back, I think that might push him down a little bit. But the fact that he's made plays uh, to the extent that he has and the fact that he continues to contribute on special teams, I think he's earned a little bit of playing time at corner. Anybody else? I saw Silas Bolden, Bolden had a big catch. Any other, any other freshmen? Uh, well, Isaiah, Isaiah Newell, Newell technically, yeah. technically is still a, a redshirt freshman or a true, is he a true freshman last true year? True freshman, I think. Yeah. He was okay. True so last technically year, so. still a true, st freshman. technically still a true freshman. He had three carries for 15 yards. Uh, John Dunmore had a catch. Tommy Spencer had a catch. So, I mean, there's guys, you know, making plays that uh, haven't really gotten much playing time to this point. It's exciting. I, I think this is the most excitement I've had with Oregon State football for a while. How about you, Carter? I'm right there with you. Yeah. I mean, optimism. I, I would hesitate to, I'd hesitate to predict a win at USC, but the fact that we can say that Oregon State has a realistic chance to go down to LA and end this 61-year streak uh, against a team that was picked to win the Pac-12 South, that says a lot about the trajectory this program is on. And it says a lot about what they were able to prove to us in the first three weeks of the season. Okay. You have one guy on the team that you get to uh, pick to uh, give you the, the fire up speech before you hit the field against SC. Who are you picking? I'll go with Andre, Andre Hughes Murray. Yeah. Uh, he's a captain for a reason. He's been a team captain for three years and he's always the one that leads the you know, the pregame huddle uh, when they're on the field warming up. And uh, there's a reason he does that because he's, he's an awesome guy to listen to on the practice field. And uh, he, he just plays with so much fire. And I think, I think this game would mean a lot to him as a, a sixth year guy who's been one of the leaders of this defense really since he came as a true freshman. Uh, I, I think it'd be huge for him to go into to LA and come up with a big win like this as kind of a, you know, one of the highlights of his career. And so I think, since it means so much to him and the fact that he is a very vocal guy, uh, he's going to get this team fired up to go into the Coliseum. And I'm also going to throw out Tyjon Lindsay. I want him right there talking it up because he can talk a little too. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's easily one of the most energetic guys on this roster. Okay, Carter. Well, we have a huge week planned at Beaver Blitz. Um, if you're a Beaver fan, make sure you're in the lodge, checking out all of the discussion and uh, the VIP articles that Carter will be producing this week. Carter will be heading down to the Coliseum on Thursday morning. So um, we'll have some updates throughout. Um, and then Saturday evening, the Beavs take on the Trojans at 7.30. Stick with Beaver Blitz for all the latest. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Dam Podcast.